the editor-in-chief of the Cornell Review, a correspondent for Campus Reform, a young scholar at Cornell University. He hosted a talk show that broadcast to 20 million people. He's a best-selling author, and he's just getting started. The one, the only, Joe Silverstein. Welcome to this episode of the Joe Silverstein Podcast. Today I have on Rollin Molina. He's the military affairs analyst for the Cornell Review. He served in the United States Marine Corps for five years. Rollin, how are you doing today? Joe, I am very happy to be on your podcast. You know, I've, I've listened to the past two that you did and excellent work. Um, your last guest, he was a aspiring Congress member, right? John That's Lee, right. Representative mm-hmm. Omar. Yeah, that was a great, that was a great podcast. Thanks so much. Yeah, Lacey Johnson was great. And Alex Humali, we had to give a shout out to as well, the attorney. And it's just interesting because the last couple of episodes have actually been regarding important topics. For example, constitutional law was the last one with Seuss versus Cuomo. Uh, Prior to that was the whole discussion about Marxism, and that was with congressional candidate Lacey Johnson. And now this conversation is very important because this is about essentially national security, which is perhaps the most important topic. So constitutional law sort of determines the type of society we want to live in, Marxism, capitalism, that debate, which we'll probably get into a little bit today, that determines the prosperity of the country that we're going to be in, which is very important. And of course, just as important as any of them, and even more important possibly, is national security and United United States interests abroad. And that's what we're going to be getting into today with regard to China. So I will... Go ahead. Yep, we'll get right into it. So we see an interesting topic here. We see what's happening with China. Uh, Just recently, just a couple of hours ago, the Wall Street Journal reported that Mike Pompeo came out and made a statement against China's claims to the South China Sea in a very specific way that the United States hasn't done before in such explicit terms. So what is your views on that? What is your views on what the U.S. response should be to this increased China aggression? What would your advice be if you were advising President Trump right now? What would your advice be? Well, I think that, you know, we really have to counter Chinese aggression in the South China Sea. Uh, the U.S. has consistently responded professionally, of course. You know, we've conducted freedom of navigation um, in the South China Sea. And we are currently have two carriers in the South China Sea, correct? Uh, we have the Nimitz, uh, the Reagan, and I believe the Roosevelt joined them for a little bit in the South China Sea. Um, the China's moves in the South China Sea and, and elsewhere are very similar to that of imperial expansion. Um, I don't think they're going to slow down. And I mean, we can see what just happened with Hong Kong. Uh, their moves are, are very worrisome. And it makes me fear for the future of Taiwan as well. Well, it's very interesting. And you alluded to the imperialism of it. It's rooted really in Chinese history because President Xi Jinping has a fundamental belief that China needs to be returned to its prosperity, to its prominence on the global stage, to being the number one country in the world, which of course today, the, the world order the United States is in charge. It's the liberal international economic order. It's dominated by free trade and democratic principles, all things that we celebrate. And China is fundamentally opposed to that. China is ruled by one party system, the Communist Party of China. They're opposed to democratic principles. They're opposed to free speech. There's a lot of repression in that country which we'll get into even the terms of doing business in China. Businesses, American businesses have to commit to censorship. 
if you look at if you mm -hmm, if you look at Google, if you look at other things, it's a very troublesome uh, thing with regards to China. Right. Of course, like all communist regimes, China is going to quell dissent. Um, anybody operating in China operates by their terms. Uh, you know, we were speaking earlier of um, intellectual property laws and how companies have to give those up, have to give up their intellectual property to China just to operate in their space. Yeah, no, that's a certainly a big issue as well. And that sort of goes to the question of what is our resolve and where do we draw the line here? President Trump, in terms of the economics, the economic order, has stood up to China with trade, has put sanctions on China because we ship goods into China and there's tariffs on those goods, but historically they've shipped goods into the United States and there were no tariffs. So that's a situation, that's a problem that's being addressed by the current administration. That being said, there's problems that aren't being adequately addressed and that's not a knock on President Trump. They haven't been adequately addressed for the last 60 years. And we as a country have to get serious about determining policy as to how to address them. We see a lot of horrific things being done by China. We see, for example, a humanitarian crisis, total violation of human rights. They have in concentration camps, 2 million Muslims in China. They torture them. They practice eugenics. They do forced abortions on the women. It's really a terrible human rights crisis that is going on there. And it underscores the fragility of civil liberties, of freedoms, and it underscores what could happen if the, a government has too expansive of power domestically. So one of the things we first have to do, because there is a bit of ideological warfare here, make no mistake about it, there is. Now, does that mean that this is going to become a full-fledged Cold War? We would all hope not, because the risk of an accident happening in terms of a military confrontation increases as the political tensions increase between the nations. That being, and of course, we are an interconnected world. It's not like the Cold War where it's separate camps and separate regions and Russia's trying to take over this part and the United States is influencing these colonies and this land. It's a very interconnected world. There's a lot of trade that goes on. There's a lot of financial interconnections in the financial markets. So it's a very interconnected world. That said, there will still be, and there is, ideological warfare going on. And one of the things that the United States has to do is at least win the war on the home front first. We have to address the aggression of China for sure. We have to be strong on that unequivocally. But we also have to win the war the ideological battle that's happening at home because what you've been seeing has been a Marxist uprising. You see increasingly uh, very large numbers of the youth, of people from our generation that hold positive views towards socialism and negative views towards capitalism. So that's another concern as well as before we even talk about winning abroad this ideological battle, we first domestically have to do a better job of convincing the people in this country through funding things like as Congress did in 1993, the, the memorial for victims of communism and things of that nature. We really need to do education on this country. What happened with Mao? What happened with Lenin? What happened with Stalin and all these people? Right. Unfortunately, right now, what we have is um, we have a lot of ignorance going on. And people are really ignorant to the flaws inherent with communism and exactly what communism has done to the world. I mean, it, it was only, what, 70 years ago that we had World War II. And then we had the Soviet Union come in and what is it, 10 million people dead just in Soviet Union, just in the Soviet Union alone. Um, but to your earlier point, I would say that we're in a pseudo Cold War with China at this point. Um, and the fact that 
like you mentioned, the Uyghur Muslims, they're being murdered by the communist regime. And we have Americans here on our own soil that think socialism, which is just a precursor to communism, is a good option for us. We have to get this information out there. We have to educate our civilian population and let them know this is not something that we should strive for. For sure. And an attack on one faith is an attack on all faiths. They're not attacking the Muslims solely because they're Muslim. They're attacking the Muslims because it's a religion. They don't like religion in communist countries. It, it's totally paradoxical it's, to what they want to accomplish. Correct. It's, if you're not loyal to the party, well, you're no good. Absolutely. And that's a serious problem. Yeah, you know, it's very disappointing to see they had um, protesters go into a church. I believe this was in New York. I'm sure you saw the video. Um, you know, it's been all over social media. You had protesters going into a church and even yelling at kids and yelling at a mother saying, why are you taking your kid here to save your child? And I, this was a Christian-based church. Yeah. You know, well, communism is, does not go hand-in-hand hand with religion. Religion... No ask you to not have you know all of your faith in the state to obey the state yes but to have your faith in god and communism is all about faith in the party for sure well that's why you see on the left there's such attempts to discredit religious institutions and to we just had on alex humali a great practicing attorney based in new york city and we discussed that length the court case with cuomo where the court said and i'm not comparing andrew cuomo to communist China, just to be clear here, but it's just, <laughs> it, but it, it is like a very mild version of that, right? Like this is where, this is the danger of this ideology if it goes too far and that needs to be pointed out. But that being said, we had a whole discussion about how the federal court slapped down on the restrictions that Cuomo and de Blasio had on the churches because they said, this is something that isn't being held. No one else is being held to the standard. The retail stores aren't. The, any other institution isn't, but the churches were being held to a 25% cap capacity when every other organization was being held to a 50% capacity for reopening. But that's right. a different, that's a different, um, you know, I don't want to go too into the weeds with that, but it right. certainly highlights the problem in terms of the limits on religious freedom and other things in the country of China. So certainly to, to wrap up that part of the discussion, we need to win the ideological battle at home first. But specifically with regard to the U.S. military relations, we see now a lot of things going on. China and the United States both held exercises in the South China Sea at the same time. I support that 100% from the perspective of the United States. We need to aggressively, aggressively say China does not own the South China Sea. It went to an international tribunal in 2016, as the Wall Street Journal reported. And the international tribunal said these claims to the South China Sea that China is making is nonsense. It's not based on any accurate historical or economic data. It's not based right. on anything except the desire for power. Let, let's be clear. It is not only China that is making these claims. Uh, China, Taiwan, Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, Philippines, each claim sovereignty over some of the Spratly Islands. Um, you know, some of they request that countries send a, a, a notification that they're going to be traveling near these islands. So it's not just China, but you are very correct that, yes, freedom of navigation in the South China Sea is vital to keeping peace. We cannot allow China to, you know, keep their imperial expansion over islands that are contested. 
for sure. And that's the thing too. Those other countries, I'm certainly aware that they're claiming that land, but they're not building up these islands. China is building up islands and they're weaponizing the islands and putting military equipment there to try to, I guess, control the maritime area, control the passage through that area. And the United States has to take a very strong stance. And so far, I commend the Trump administration for doing so. But at the same time, I mean, we have to look, China is in a very aggressive mood. Look at their relations with India now. They just killed 20 Indian troops on the border. These things could escalate very quickly. And that's a concern that people should have as well. And that's why in addition to taking strong stances, we have to ensure that those sort of back channels for communication, for de-escalation behind the scenes still exist. Yes. You know, I think a conflict in the South China Sea is almost inevitable. We saw in 2018 where uh, we had a near miss with China as we were, uh, I can't remember which ship it was, but a Chinese ship ended up cutting across the bow just meters away from a U.S. ship. Um, you know, China, China's island building campaign is similar to that of Imperial Japan during World War II. You know, they make bases on islands to put more distance between their rivals and their homeland. Um, the advantage, of course, is that China has that Chinese did not enjoy, sorry, the advantage that China has that the Japanese did not enjoy are the carrier killer missiles. Uh, just um, a few days ago, Global Times, the newspaper, the state-run newspaper of China, tweeted that China has a wide selection of uh, anti-carrier killer missiles um, at their grasp and that any U.S. carrier involvement or any U.S. carrier movement in the South China Sea is, and I quote, at the pleasure of the People's Liberation Army. Now, of course, we are there, but we have two powerful aircraft carriers and the Navy Chief of Information tweeted back, Two U.S. Navy aircraft carriers operating in the international waters, international waters of the South China Sea, the Nimitz and the Reagan are not intimidated. And you know, to add um, a little insult to injury, they <laughs> he put hashtag at our discretion. Well, that's certainly a good hashtag. Listen, it requires strong, steady leadership. It requires defiance, not even defiance, because defiance is to a position, someone who's in a position of authority, not even defiance, but they don't own the sea. We'll never let them own that sea. That's an issue we have a lot of resolve over as a country. Because if right. they- You cited the, the UN tribunal and then China itself, this goes back to uh, the Law of the Sea Convention in 1982. China itself agreed to these terms. Well, the interesting thing, speaking of China agreeing to the terms, this trade deal, what do you think? Do you think they're going to uphold it, phase one of the trade deal? We certainly know now we see it doesn't look like phase two is happening anytime soon. Prior to the coronavirus crisis, it was in question whether or not they would stick to their commitments. Now, in addition to the fact that there's an economic crisis where countries have less money to spend because they're spending it on stimulating their economies and other things of that nature. In addition to that, there's heightened tensions. Do you think phase one of this trade deal will fall through? You know, I, I can't say for sure. I do know that China has a distinct advantage over the United States. And that is that most of our manufacturing is based in China. You know, we have free market economy. Businesses are able to move to wherever to do their manufacturing. Um, and China has more than taken advantage of that. You know, they have practically all of our business. We saw when President Trump first imposed the tariffs uh, after a few months, businesses were moving to Vietnam to avoid those tariffs. 
I think we need to continue this, um, this economic battle, essentially, to reduce our reliance on China. We, we, these agreements, I mean, who knows if China's gonna you know, uphold their end. Well, the coronavirus pandemic certainly highlights the problems with U.S.-China relations economically and the implications for national security. For example, a lot of our prescription drugs, a very significant portion of them are made in China. And that's something a lot of people weren't aware of. And of course, in a time where there's disputes, in a time where there's uh, political tensions, that's not good to have an opposing rival country producing essential goods that your people need to consume. So that's certainly something we should look to is switching those supply chains up and moving them back to the United States or at least to more friendly countries. So that's certainly one issue as well. Of course, we do have to remember that Vietnam is communist as well. Yes, no, that's true for sure, for sure. See, the thing too that's interesting here, or one of the things I should say that's interesting here is the United States and China has historically had a very complex relationship. There's been times where we've been allies, where we've been close, and there's been times where there's been a lot of tensions. This, isn't, this hasn't started with President Xi Jinping, all of this expansion, all of this aggression. However, that being said, it has accelerated under his leadership for sure. They laid out their construction plans. They're dumping money into Africa to buy out essentially the African governments to buy influence there. It's something that the United States needs to construct and it can't be done in this one hour podcast, but it has, the United States has to construct a grand strategy of which the focal point is maintaining our number one status in the world, maintaining our national security, and the reason I say maintaining our number one status, yeah, it's great to be number one. And yeah, we take pride in that for sure. But we believe in free markets. That's what we believe in. So if we're not producing the best products and all those things, we will fall behind. That's just the nature of the system that we operate under. But we're fighting to protect the system that we operate under. We're fighting to maintain freedom of the seas. We're fighting to maintain this open and free trade. And it's that, that's an important battle to have. And that's certainly a, a hill worth fighting on. Yeah, no, for sure. We really need to get manufacturing back to the US. Um, you know, if you, you can, if you buy something in America, made in America, you know that it's gonna be a quality product. And like you said earlier, the old COVID situation, I mean, if we can't even, we can't make masks, really. We have to have the present um, enact the De Defense Production Act, right? To get ventilators made ventilators that are needed by American citizens and there's just no manufacturing for it. That is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, it is. I mean, one thing I will say, even though it totally is ridiculous, I am impressed by a lot of the companies that were able to repurpose their factories in such a nice time span and credit to the labor in the United States and credit to also the employers who came together and did something really special for the country in a time of need and continue to do so as it's spiking again in places all around the country. That being well, said, thank God the mortality rates are lower and the cases are less serious. That has to be mentioned. Uh, although I'm not trying to segue into the coronavirus pandemic uh, medical <laughs> specifics. Yeah, no, th that's very true. It is a very good example of exactly what Americans can accomplish when we come together and we have a mission, you know, when we have a shared goal. Unfortunately, what we see right now, and I am going to take us into this coronavirus pandemic, um, we see that we're not all on the same page. We see that there's a lot of people that are fighting the social distancing guidelines. 
We see that there's people fighting wearing a mask in public. We see that there's young people like the students of uh, what is it, an Alabama university that had a Corona party mm. to see who could get, who was gonna be the first to get Corona. You know, we have to become the United States. We cannot allow this um, division to go on much longer. We will surely fall apart if we do. That's certainly true. And it's a great quote from Abraham Lincoln. One of my friends actually gave me a great plaque with the American flag and the quotes on it for uh, this past year for my birthday. And it says on it, united we stand, divided we fall. And that's something to keep in mind during these times. The problem is within the country, there's such stark divisions on what the country should stand for and what it should be about. And I think that really, it's not because the people have, yeah, sure, there's definitely the radical few left-wingers who have a view of the country that isn't aligned with what it should be. But a lot of people are subscribing to these ideologies and subscribing to a lot of these notions simply because we're not doing a good job and not we meaning me and you because we happen to be two very articulate people, two very intelligent people who are very successful. But as a whole, I don't think the conservative movement is doing a good job uh, articulating to young people or even just the centrist movement, whatever you want to call it, the normal movement, the benefits of free market capitalism. Uh, and certainly with regard to on our side as well, I think people should wear masks. I think we should all be on this in this together. Uh, one of the problems there is, is since the mask has become almost a symbol of government authority and government overreach, I think people are naturally rebelling against it because of that, because you have Cuomo who thinks he's a czar and Newsom in California, who you're very aware of, who you understand some of his problems greatly, uh, who thinks he's a czar. So people... Are, I feel are acting in ways that they otherwise wouldn't if this weren't being forced on them. Right. I think this is, it sort of goes back to communism spreading in, or socialism, com communism spreading in the U.S. We need more information, right? We need to get this information. We can't just go off of, well, look at, we have rising infection numbers, or we have, you know, these deaths, or we, ha we only have 80 ICU beds in town, and we can't afford to have more people sick. We need to keep the people informed. We need to have these daily press briefings and we need to know exactly what toll the coronavirus takes on the body. Now, obviously from a scientific standpoint, there's no exact way to tell, right? This is a novel virus. It's gonna take a few years for us to gain a better understanding, but we have to keep people informed. I feel that people are getting complacent to this virus and it's not going away. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies are still doing human trials. We have no vaccine. People are going to continue to die unless we come together and fight this thing. Let me ask you this. If a vaccine were to come out of China before it came out of the United States, would you personally take that vaccine? I wouldn't. But I wouldn't take it right away from the United States anyway. I would wait and see what the results would be. I'm not an anti-vaxxer by any means. I believe in vaccines. But with regard to something as new as this, with the disease that statistically is someone who's 20 years old, and I would like to say in relatively good shape, you know, the chances are I'll be fine. Yeah. However, with, well, the vaccine that, with the vaccine that no one's ever tested, that no one knows anything about, I think I'd take my chances going the other route. Of course. And, you know, I, I did have that pregnant pause there when he asked that. <laughs> um, you know, I'm thinking that we'd have to see what the FDA says. We'd have to see what American medical professionals say about this vaccine. You know, it's whether it comes from China or it comes from the UK, you know, we're going to have to do our own tests. 
um, we're going to have to have our own trials and see what happens. That's true. Listen, before we go, I want to talk to you about space and TikTok. So we'll start with TikTok. TikTok, as you know, the United States banned the military from having it, banned military personnel from having it on their public and private phones to protect the military from data steals, from data theft from China. Could you explain from your own military experience and from your experience researching with the leading conservative newspaper in America, the Cornell Review, as the military affairs analyst, what is your perspective on the situation with TikTok? And do you think, because my, my perspective with regard to the youth, I don't think people comprehend the seriousness of it. I see people trending save TikTok, and I see some conservative activists who are young who are defending TikTok, and I don't think people understand the national security implications that are involved with this, the data theft that China is using against American citizens. It happened with Equifax as well. Right, and um, you know, last year TikTok said that all user data is stored in the US with a backup in Singapore, right? They're based in Beijing, but none of their stuff is stored in China. And TikTok has said all their data centers are outside of China. Um, none of its data is subject to Chinese law. But we're talking about the CPP or the Chinese Communist Party, um, they'll just create a law that will give them power over those TikTok servers. Uh, TikTok is owned by, uh, what is it, ByteDance? I think um, TikTok isn't even a thing in China. They have their own app over there. Um, but I very much agree that we need to ban TikTok from the American markets. Um, what's most interesting about the TikTok ban, however, is that there isn't really a good way to implement it. Uh, the U.S. government would have to find a legal reason to request that the app be pulled from app stores. And even then, phones that have the app would still be able to access the servers. Um, the U.S. could blacklist it like it did with Huawei. The U.S. Uh, President Trump could put in an executive order banning it for the time being, but you know, that's, not a, that's not a permanent solution. Yeah, certainly, certainly. What would you recommend would be a permanent solution? I'd have to give that more thought. Fair enough, fair enough. All right, let's switch off to our last topic, I guess, for the conversation is space force, space politics, the space race, a lot of things going on in space. Now, President Trump established space force during his first term. Uh, I think it was a great move. I think it's something that is long overdue and important from someone who served in the military, from someone who's very knowledgeable on these topics, what is your perspective on both the actual logistics of the, op of the organization, of the branch, how that separate branch will operate autonomous from the other branches? Because I know there's a lot of uh, intermingling there and a lot of interconnectedness with the Air Force. So that's the first part of that. And the second part of that is what is China doing? What are other countries that are adversaries such as Russia perhaps doing that's similar to the establishment of Space Force? And why is this crucial? Or maybe you don't think it is crucial. I happen to think it's very important, but why is it crucial to United States foreign policy going forward and national security? Right, well, like I said earlier, we're not just in a pseudo cold war um, here on earth we're in a pseudo cold war in space. Like it occurred in the 60s, there's further competition to be had in space. And I think one of the best moves the Trump administration has made is the creation of Space Force. Um, during World War I, we had the, what is it, the Army Air Corps. And as it grew, that split off into the Air Force. Now, the Space Force comes from the Air Force's Space Command. 
space is a growing frontier, not to uh, sound too Star Trekky on you, but it's a growing frontier that we need to dominate. Um, we know that there's you know, plenty of jokes to be made at the new military branch's expense. Um, Netflix's Space Force. Yeah, you know, I, I saw it. Have you? Have you seen Space Force on Netflix yet? I haven't seen it. You know, they, they make a few jokes. It's, I, I got to say, I was, a, I was a little disappointed in Steve Carell. <laughs> but um, all jokes aside, uh, I think that Space Force will be a great asset, a great a game changer, really, um, in the next de decade, especially as uh, NASA's Artemis Lunar Exploration Program plans to land the first woman and the next man on the moon's surface. Um, I think that we need to dominate in space, and Space Force is one of the first steps to do that. Um, you know, we see that China has a capability of shooting down satellites from orbit. This happened in 2007, 2008, 2013. Uh, this technology isn't new, of course. The U.S. ran a similar test in 85. But space is being weaponized. Space will be weaponized. Um, I believe that it's in 2028 that NASA plans on launching a crew and a, a habitat to maintain sustained presence on the moon. China's National Space Administration and the Russian Federation, Russian Federal Space Agency also have similar plans. Um, where humans go, weapons will go. That's well, unfortunately a harsh truth. It's also very interesting, a point you raised earlier about some of the jokes that have been made about Space Force. It's important to note that during the Reagan administration, people also laughed at the missile defense program that Reagan set up, which turned out to be an instrumental part of U.S. foreign policy, of deterrence, of maintaining the ability to strike back in the horrific event that we were hit with the nuclear weapon. These things that have become a very important part of strategic studies, of military history, of things that scholars look into, that military leaders look into, uh, at one point weren't taken seriously either. So certainly it's good to be entrepreneurial in our consideration of these circumstances and our considerations and deliberations about what to do going forward in setting policy and setting up new branches of the military and being at the forefront, at the frontier of that next generation of combat. Right, right. Um, you know, not only are we looking at the next generation of combat, but scientific advancement as well. You know, we're gonna go back to the moon uh, and within this decade. And the goal is of course to reach Mars. Space Force is gonna be necessary in securing our shuttles for those missions. Because of the shutdown of uh, NASA shuttles by the Obama administration, we've had to rely on, on Russia to get to the ISS. I find that unacceptable. You know, we have to expand on NASA, on Space Force to you know, maintain our status as the leader in space. Absolutely. Well, we'll leave it there for today. Roland, thank you very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Of course, thank you very much for having me. Thanks everyone, take care. Thanks for listening to the Joe Silverstein Podcast. Visit www.joesilverstein.com and follow Joe on Twitter at SilversteinUSA. Visit www.thecornellreview.org to keep up with breaking news, our latest articles, and more. Like the Cornell Review on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. God bless America.